Hello from London. This is Tax Notes Talk. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, OECD Update. We're at the International Fiscal Association Congress in London, and I'm joined by Chief Correspondent Stephanie Johnston. Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks. So you just did an interview. Uh, Who did you talk to? I spoke with Pascal Saint-Amand, the director of the OECD's Center for Tax Policy and Administration, and he gave us a bit of an update on the current state of the OECD's work on addressing the tax challenges of the digitalization of the economy. Let's go to that interview. But before I do, I should note for listeners that we're doing these interviews out in the wild, as it were, so there may be a stray noise from time to time. Enjoy. Pascal Saint-Amand, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure. As you would expect, we are very interested in how things are going with the discussion on the year-end 2020 solution to tax digitalization. So we wanted to ask you questions. Last time we spoke, after the G7, you'd said that the OECD Secretariat is testing a unified approach on a solution to tax digitalization. What can you tell us about it at this point? Listen, we did adopt in the spring, a program of work to implement a solution based on two pillars for addressing the tax challenges of the digitalization of the economy. Sorry for this very long title, but it's very important to understand that it's not about taxing digital companies. It's not even about taxing digitization or digitalization. It's about addressing in a comprehensive manner the tax challenges arising from the digitalization of the economy. So we adopted a program of work and we said in this program of work that under pillar one, which is about the new nexus and new profit allocation rules, There were three competing concurrent approaches, one UK on highly digitalized business model, one American on marketing intangible, one Indian and G24, meaning developing countries, on uh, the significant economic presence. And we said, listen, we cannot deliver in 2020 if we do not have a unified approach. Since then, we've worked hard developing a unified approach. It's being discussed, so we do not have yet something to communicate upon. There are some ideas emerging. And I suppose the panel of the OECD IFA in a couple of days will allow us to identify a number of building blocks of what a unified approach could be. And what I think was important since the spring was the G7 meeting. It's only seven countries out of 134 members, but seven important countries, including the US, which is absolutely key to a global solution. And what I did notice was the communique approved by the G7 leaders. I mean, you will remember that the past G7 didn't come up with a communique. Here you have a communique and you have one sentence saying we must have a solution at the OECD to address these challenges. Which is good news for you. Well, I mean, it's good news not for us at the OECD. I mean, yes, of course, for us at the OECD, but frankly speaking, nobody cares about us. And what matters is that it's a good news, I think, for countries, good news for taxpayers, that we are moving towards finding a common approach which may fix deficiencies of the international tax system and allow the tax system to be longstanding, to be sustainable, including facing these challenges arising from the digitalization of the economy. And at that G7 meeting, the U.S. and France had agreed that France would effectively repay companies that paid their digital services tax on the difference once a solution has been found at the OECD. And you said that would raise the stakes for an end of 2020 solution. Has that effectively played out since then? 
it's clear that in the run-up to Biarritz, and I would say, so Biarritz was the place where the G7 took place, but also in the run-up to Chantilly, which was the place where the finance ministers of the G7 met mid-July, there was there were some tensions, in particular between France and the US, France being the country enacting a domestic legislation providing for a unilateral measure, taxing highly digitalized business models on a turnover basis, which did unplease, to say the least, the US and the US president in particular, which triggered a bilateral discussion. We, the OECD, were not part to that bilateral discussion. But what's interesting is that the outcome of that discussion is we, the US and France, will find a settlement, but part of the settlement is agreeing jointly on a global solution at the OECD. Now, how does it play out? It's clear that it does raise the stakes for us because you have this tension and this tension can be solved through a multilateral solution. But it's also a signal, I think, that countries willing to take unilateral measures may face some backlash from the US. It's clear. I mean, threats to tax French wine as a French citizen, of course, I would be shocked, but that's not relevant to the purpose. But it means that you have trade tensions we can, which can result from this topic. And I think that will help get countries building a solution up together. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. If you're interested in learning about taxes, and since you're hearing this, that would seem to be the case. Our sponsors have a program that could be right for you. The Graduate Tax Program is a one-year, full-time program offered at the UC Irvine campus. It's ranked as the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. All members of the founding faculty have practical experience and have significant experience teaching in other graduate programs. The program boasts a small student-to-faculty ratio that ensures students get the attention they need to succeed in their studies and their careers. For domestic students and U.S. permanent residents, the deadline to apply is April 1st, 2020. Non-U.S. students must apply by February 1st. Apply today. Visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Speaking of potential tensions, what remaining outstanding issues need to be ironed out at this point on Pillar 1? Many issues need to be ironed out. I mean, the first one is, can we move from these three competing approaches to a unified approach? That's the main question. And to get there, we need to have a common understanding of what is at stake. What are we trying to solve? Is it only the case for highly digitalized business models or is it broader than this? What about the imperative to improve tax certainty and solutions which would be easy to implement. How can we come up with new concepts such as a new nexus, such as new profit allocation rules which may shift more taxing rights to the market while addressing the issue which is addressing the tax challenges of the digitalization of the economy. So is it the whole economy which is at stake or not? And how do you build that in the existing system? So you can see that you have a number of questions and these questions are being currently discussed in the inclusive framework. For the time being, it's an intergovernmental discussion. We have paper which has been discussed. It was only a few days ago by the steering group of the inclusive framework. The full inclusive framework will be meeting on the 1st of October in the 
format of the task force on the digital economy, which we should rebrand, by the way. But the 134 members will have these elements. They will be able to discuss. There will be some public release, probably early October, if there is no strong objection to what the Secretariat is proposing, which is this unified approach. And then there will be a discussion at the G20 finance ministers meeting on the 17th of October in Washington and the sides of the full meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. And finally, we're all aiming at a in-depth discussion, why not agreement, in January at the Inclusive Framework meeting. In between, there will be a public consultation. As you know, at the OECD, we never move forward without having all stakeholders' input. We need to have a paper to have an input. I think we'll have the paper again sometime early October before the G20 meeting, which will give plenty of time for businesses to contribute to a public consultation, which could take place late November. Let's talk about Pillar 2 then. So we understand that it'll likely be modeled after Guilty, except perhaps on a country-by-country basis? As regards Pillar 2, which is integral to a solution, and that was agreed last January by the Inclusive Framework that we should seek a two-pillar solution. As regards Pillar 2, we didn't face the problem of having competing approaches. We just have a number of questions. So what's the origin of Pillar 2? The U.S. enacted its domestic legislation, tax reform. And doing so, it did change a number of the fundamentals of the U.S. tax system. And that has implications on Pillar 1. I mean, possible move to the market, uh, questions on the Armstrong principle, which definitely remains the basis of a sort of solution, but can you go beyond the Armstrong principle on some aspects? On Pillar 2, it's obvious. The US enacted guilty. And European countries and beyond Europe, many countries looked at that with envy, especially as they tried in the 90s to have something similar to global minimum tax or fixing a floor or something like that. And the main opponent was the US, which at that time didn't want to hear about regulating tax rates or something like that. So we clearly have now the conditions for a conversation. There are many pending issues which we are working on from a technical perspective. One of them is the rate. What kind of rate would you go for? Of course, the rate is probably secondary to what's the base you use and also the blending. I mean, do you look at the average effective tax rate of your companies as per guilty, or do you look at it from a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis? And here there is no agreement. We have the US probably advocating a global average because that's in line with guilty. And, and I think with the philosophy of guilty, which is to say we want an inclusion rule. We don't want to eliminate all tax planning opportunities, but we, we want to fix a floor to how far you can go. You have European countries, which probably for some of them, at least Germany, France, and a few others say, well, that's an opportunity to fix the problem of zero tax. So there is a discussion going on there. And, and you have another dimension, which is about the under tax payment rule. How do you do reverse engineering to make sure that if a country doesn't implement the globe proposal, well, then the flows are still taxed, and that's the under-tax payment rule. You have many other questions like, do you do carve-outs? In other words, if you do an inclusion rule, do you include all income, or are there some elements of income which shouldn't be included? Example, tax incentives. You have one country, I think it's known, Colombia, saying, well, actually, if we want to promote the tourism industry, we want 
want to give tax break to hotels. If other countries take them back, then it removes the incentive. That's just an example, but you may have many others on infrastructure, on IP. And so we need to go through all these elements. I think the, the different building blocks are clearly identified. We are just now in the process of working them out and try to see whether some form of consensus can emerge. And during early discussions in the BEPS 2.0 work, can I call it that? Was it official, BEPS 2.0? The only person for the time being who called it 2.0, in addition to Stephanie Johnson, is the <laughs> French president, uh, Macron, at the previous G20 summit. He mentioned in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, he said, well, we need to move to 2.0, BEPS 2.0. So why not? We don't <laughs> yet have a brand, but happy to discuss on that basis. Here, here. First, folks. So in earlier discussions, there were some concerns raised about how do you treat losses? Like, how do you treat companies that make losses, which, you know, Uber and a lot of these other nascent tech companies, they have many losses. A lot of these unicorns do. What is the current thinking on the treatment of losses in this discussion? Under pillar one, you have the issue of profit allocation. And of course, a number of countries rightfully and companies rightfully point to, well, how do we do with losses? And that's core to the discussion. It's, it's a complex discussion because if you think that um, only routine return should be allocated to market, if it's routine, then you don't take risk. So question mark on the losses, there should be losses. But if you start allocating residual profit that we would define as the excess return, what goes beyond routine, taken as an economy concept more than the traditional transfer pricing concept. Uh, in that case, you have the question of the losses. And of course, losses should be allocated. I think nobody disputes that. But then you have some pretty nasty technical question of timing. I mean, if you run losses for a long time and you have the new solution and you get profits quickly after the new solution entered into force. Isn't that unfair for the country which had to borrow the losses as a country of residence? So these are important questions that are being discussed. And I think countries, all of the countries, are pretty constructive in that discussion. And we definitely need input from business to be able to refine the reflection there. It's one of the 1,000 questions which arise. I mean, we're talking about something which is significant. It may not be a complete fundamental rewrite of international tax rules. It's incremental, but there is a new aspect moving away from the Armstrong principle on some aspects, on some transactions. That's something which is new. And because it's new, it raises many questions, including this one. Speaking of Uber, has the OECD reviewed Uber's proposal? We are reviewing all the proposals. What I would like to say about that is, unlike during the BEPS project, companies, in particular American companies, have been extremely constructive. They have come up with ideas, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Uber, and a few others. And that's extremely interesting to see that companies are part of the conversation. I understand that in the US, you have some companies now waking up and say, hey, come on, I mean, this was digital. I mean, this was a digital project, and now we're talking about a broad solution than digital. So what, what's going on there? But if you look at, at the fundamentals, one, Congress has been aware and not only aware, but also encouraging Treasury to negotiate a multilateral solution at the OECD. Senator Grassley mentioned that, chair of the Senate Finance Committee. He co-signed a letter with Senator Wyden. So you can see that there is awareness and I would say support 
from what we can see from Congress. And I would say it's the same from business, even though, you know, this is a very diverse constituency, including in the US. So it's fair that you have many different perspectives there. But as you've just mentioned, some companies did actually contribute with some concrete proposals and not only tech companies. So let's talk about treaties. The U.S. has made some significant progress with treaty protocols and are working on tax treaties now. Now that the U.S. has broken the deadlock on treaties, how does that change the game or raise the stakes for these discussions? I think we need to be very modest and careful. Yes, the U.S. has been able to move forward on a number of tax treaties, protocols, and so. And that's very good news. I mean, that's very good news for the partners of the U.S. That's very good news for all international tax processes because it means that the deadlock is no longer there. What does it mean concretely in terms of the U.S. moving legislation or a multilateral convention in the coming months? It's not the right time to talk about that. But but that sends another positive signal in addition to the letters sent by congressmen to Treasury or by the positions taken on the floor by the chair of the Senate Finance Committee indicating that the U.S. is, is part of a multilateral process, including in its legislative branch. And we are here in London right before Brexit. What is your sense of how Brexit might affect these discussions and the OEC's work in general? This discussion, I'm not sure that will be any impact. The OECD's discussion, I'm not sure either, but I would like to know what exactly Brexit will be, when exactly it will take place. And I think on a daily basis, these changes. So it's too early to decide anything on the consequences. But, you know, the UK is a core member to the OECD. The UK moving out from the European Union means that the OECD is even more relevant to the UK. So I don't expect any major change there. On the contrary, I think the UK will be even more involved in the OECD, even though they're already a key member. And uh, the UK delegate has a big influence on the process, uh, both very technical and political. So no big change to be expected. But again, I mean, Brexit has been kind of an adventure, which is not finished yet. Looking ahead to the Saudi presidency of the G20, what is your sense at this point of how they will carry forward the implementation and follow-up work? We clearly have to deliver a solution which goes beyond to the G20. But the G20 was the body where we started BEPS, where we got a mandate to do additional work on digital, and which is paying a lot of attention to that. We are talking to the Saudi incoming presidency of the G20. I was in Riyadh a few days ago to meet the G20 president, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia. My sense is that tax will be very high on the agenda, and Saudi Arabia is very key on us delivering a solution during their presidency. They will do whatever they can to facilitate reaching consensus. So it is very positive. Now, the question will be a timing question. Do we deliver the solution in January 2020? I mean, the solution meaning the architecture of a unified approach under Pillar 1, but with some details in the parameters, or do we do that in June? And if we don't do that in June 2020, well, then maybe it's going to be failure because we would not reach a political agreement by then. 
president. So we're in crunch time. And the Saudi presidency is aware. The outgoing Japanese presidency of the G20 is aware of that too. And that's why on the 17th of October in Washington, there will be a discussion on international tax at this very short meeting of the G20 finance ministers. I discussed yesterday with the G20 deputy from Japan. So they're aware there may not be a communique, but for sure there will be a discussion. And my sense is that both Secretary Minuchin and uh, Minister Le Maire, US and France, to uh, keep going on with this uh, bilateral discussion, uh, they will be very much keen on having a ministerial discussion where you do not have people, ministers, reading the notes from their teams, but engage in a real negotiation. That's something we will see. And by then, I hope we will have been public on our proposal for a unified approach. And so final question, I'll let you go after this. What will be your main message for those here at IFA and those listening at home about how the BEPS 2.0 work is going and how the other aspects of the OECD's work? The main message for all stakeholders is things are happening. They may fail or they may succeed. It will depend on the commitment of governments, of the contribution of the different stakeholders, business in particular. And I would invite them all to think of the counterfactuals. After BEPS, where they were nervous, we have a new project, which may even be more fundamental in a sense, even though that will just be incremental. And But people are nervous. Now, think of what would happen if there is no agreement. And I think this idea of a counterfactual, which is not, oh, status quo with the existing rules and that's it, but counterfactual as an increased number of unilateral measures on tech companies, but much beyond tech companies, is what we need to have in mind so that all the stakeholders engage constructively and help us design a solution which will be sustainable so that we have a more uh, stable and sustainable system for the decades to come. Pascal, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Faye, what do we have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Ara Stefanian and Stephen Felgrand present a novel approach to taxing the digital economy. Casey Shang argues the utility of the Section 245A deduction to exempt some repatriated foreign income from federal income tax may be reduced or even disappear given how it interacts with the income inclusion mandate of Section 956. Eugene Sego and Edward Schnee discussed the Bob Richards rule, which some courts apply to decide who owns a tax refund paid to a consolidated group. In Tax Note State, Dario Arezzo analyzes the notion that it is generally more favorable for farmers to take bonus depreciation rather than Section 179 because the investment tax credit is available on the capital expenditure. Tom Yamachika argues that knowledge of the preemption statutes for three well-known federal programs dealing with managed care may be necessary to draw conclusions about their preemptive scope. In Tax Notes International, Luis Marcelo Nunez provides background on Argentina's tax system, recent case law, and legislative developments with a focus on conflicts that could arise. Nupur Jalan examines India's laws that prevent base erosion through thin capitalization and considers the applicability of Articles 9 and 24 of the OECD Model Convention. On the opinions page, Robert Goulder ponders what drives people to pay taxes and examines a recent OECD report on tax morale. And Marie Sapery writes about electric vehicle credits. 
You can read all that and a lot more in the September 23rd editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.